Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the DocillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 24th, 2019, and this is show number 759. Well, hey, we're hitting into the holiday season. We got Thanksgiving next week, and Steve's got me all panicked because it looks like uh, Christmas is actually closer to Thanksgiving than it usually is. And I'm bringing this all up because that means I'm going to be panicking looking for content. If you have some free time, you want to get away from the relatives at Thanksgiving, you want to you want to do some recordings, or maybe it's not holidays where you live and you got some free time and you'd like to make some recordings, look around on your desk, you know, I don't know, make a recording about your paper clips if you have to. Just send in some content if you would. That would be great to make my life a little bit easier while going into the holidays. This week, I asked Don McAllister, owner of Screencast Online, to come on Chit Chat Across the Pond to talk about how he's automated the production of his video tutorial podcast business. We started his very humble beginnings as a single person, as a new convert from Windows, where he just had a Mac Mini and a, a Mac Mini, I should say, and a monitor. And now he has a global workforce with automated workflows. He's even moved his Mac Pro into Mac Stadium, so it's a resource for his back-end production folks. You might remember I talked to the Mac Stadium people when I was at the AltConf. It's a, it's a crazy story of all the different kind of automation he's got going. Now, the funny part of the interview is that I totally forgot to ask him about the Mac Stadium part during the interview, and that was one of the main reasons I wanted to get him on. He pointed this out after we closed out the show, so I decided to record that segment and I spliced it back into the show. I still can't believe I did that. It works the way I spliced it back in, but man, was I embarrassed. I must do a disclaimer that I create screencasts for Don's show, which means I have a massive conflict of interest in telling you how awesome this service it is. This service is. We both try to stay to the technical parts of the show production, but to be honest, we're both so enthusiastic about the service, it's hard to avoid talking about the quality of what Don and his staff creates. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, and of course, you can find it over at podfeet.com. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. What is... How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. I still love that music. It makes me laugh every time to hear Victor. Anyway, Chelsea Cook wrote in. She said, Hi, Allison. I hope you won't don't mind this dumb question coming in written form. I want to know, what do people do with these high, crazy amounts of RAM? Yes, that includes you with your shiny new MacBook Pro. I remember when I was a kid and still using Windows, when my parents' computer had only 512 megabytes of RAM, trying to run JAWS, a popular Windows screen reader and a notorious RAM hog even to this day. With anything more than a Word document or internet browser, it was almost impossible. Then I had to petition the school to get me a laptop with two gigabytes of RAM. Then I got my MacBook Air with four, and now my brand new shiny Mac Mini with 16. It seems that as technology advances, we need more and more RAM. But something as high as 128 gigabytes in an iMac Pro or one and a half gigabytes in, actually, she said one and a half gigabytes in the new Mac Pro. She must be in one and a half terabytes in the new MacBook Pro. What is up with that? 
I should also note that I'm a voiceover user, so the requirements and intricacies of photo and video editing are kind of unknown to me, even if I future-proof my own RAM needs because voiceover is always running. But one and a half terabytes? Really? (laughs) Well, this is a great question, Chelsea, and it took me a little while to put together the pieces to answer her. The basic thing to remember is that access to RAM is fast, while disk access is slow. Modern SSDs have replaced our spinning drives, which has significantly narrowed the gap in speed between RAM and disk, but even an SSD is still slower than RAM. One reason for that is that RAM chips in your computer have a faster data path directly to the CPU, you know, to the processor. In contrast to your disk, RAM is directly connected to the CPU on a wide and fast bus. Now, why does that matter? If you can do as much as possible in RAM, you'll go faster than if you have to swap out to disk for a given operation. As RAM prices have come down, applications have been built that demand even more RAM, and you talked about that. Our operating systems have gotten bigger too, which will take advantage of more RAM. In addition to our operating systems and applications, the files we manipulate with our computers have dramatically gotten larger over time. For example, back when your parents' PC had 512 megabytes of RAM, digital photos were wee tiny. I just pulled some of my earliest digital photos from 2003 to check them out, and they are under 100 kilobytes. Today's iPhone photos are 2 megabytes. Raw photos from my big girl camera are 15 megabytes. That's 150 times as big as what I was taking in 2003. Now, when we process raw photos from a grown-up camera or even our iPhone photos, if we had to swap to disk, we'd really hate using our computers, so we need more RAM. Now, take it up a notch and think about editing video. We used to shoot 640 by 480 video, but now 4K is common even on a mobile phone. That's nearly a 30 times increase in data. Now, you could edit 4K video on an 8 gigabyte RAM system, you might be really unhappy because you'd be swapping to disk like crazy. You'd be sitting around waiting for it. When you add a transition between scenes in a video or maybe blend multi-track video together and add music tracks, you'd be sitting around twiddling those thumbs every time you made even the smallest cut as it rendered the data. Now, you specifically explained that you're a voiceover user, Chelsea, so editing photos and videos has no meaning to you. And I gave you two photo and video examples. All right, let's bring it into your world. I wrote to blind audio engineer Slough, who owns his own recording studio, and asked him about his work. My exact question was, do your giant multi-track audio thingies go way more faster when you have gobs of RAM? (laughs) I got kind of technical with him. Anyway, Slough answered immediately, oh, yes, absolutely. While there are outboard hardware units that provide digital signal processing, Most people are using their computer's CPU for DSP, which would have been unthinkable a few decades ago. These days, virtual instruments, sample-based instruments with vast libraries of audio files, use a tremendous amount of DSP power, and the more RAM you have, the faster these instruments load and perform. So, now, you asked about insane amounts of RAM, so we need to take it up another notch. There's 3D modeling analysis of large data sets like weather or telemetry data, and then machine learning. What about making a full-length feature film? That's when you start needing the kinds of insane amounts of RAM you mentioned. 
Alex Lindsay of the Pixel Core often talks about virtual reality models that he's making that take more than a day to render. So one and a half terabytes of RAM probably doesn't sound insane to him at all. Now, he's insane because the stuff he does, but that probably sounds great to him. Now, you mentioned that I bought a 16-inch MacBook Pro with 64 gigabytes of RAM, which I thought was insane when I bought it. But you know how, no matter how big of a closet you get, you figure out a way to fill it. And know how, no matter how big your disk is, you may find a way to fill that. Well, it turns out that the Mac operating system, and I'm sure other operating systems, will take advantage of however much RAM you have available. My 2016 MacBook Pro had 16 gigabytes of RAM, which was the maximum possible at the time. Before I got the 16-inch MacBook Pro, I'd have told you that I was never limited by that amount of RAM. I watched it all the time, and I was never running out of RAM. But this week, when studying up to answer her question, I discovered something fascinating. I looked down and noticed that I had 28 applications open at once on the 16-inch MacBook Pro. I opened up Activity Monitor and selected the Memory tab. Down at the bottom, you can see a little chart that describes how much total memory is being used, and it explains it in a couple of ways. I decided to open the same 28 applications on my 2016 MacBook Pro, the one with 16 gigabytes, and compare the memory usage of the two computers. The 16 gigabyte Mac showed memory usage of 13.77 gigabytes, cached files of 2 gigabytes, and it was swapping 2.81 gigabytes to disk. Now, even though the normal memory usage was only 13.77 of the 16, it was still swapping to disk because it was using some of that for cache. But here's where things get interesting. You might expect the machine with 64 gigabytes to also be using, say, around 14 gigabytes. But it wasn't. It was using 41 gigabytes of memory. It was able to put 13.6 gigabytes of cached files into memory as well. That left right around 9 gigabytes of free, uh, free, so it didn't swap to disk at all. The bottom line is that no matter how much RAM we put into computers, our applications, operating systems, and imaginations will find a way to use it all. While we were off on vacation this summer, evidently Dropbox changed their client and it caused all kinds of problems for people. But I missed the whole kerfuffle. Earlier in the year, they changed their policies on the free accounts, which caused people to lose their ever-loving minds. I know it's disappointing when something free starts to cost money, but the outrage was, I don't know, it was kind of over the top in my opinion. Perhaps it's because I pay for the $120 a year for two terabytes of storage across all of my devices. Maybe that's why I wasn't very sympathetic to the free folks. Anyway, these egregious changes by Dropbox caused much discussion on podcasts I listen to about alternatives to their service. You know, there's Google Drive, of course, and you've got Office 365, and you've already got one terabyte of storage on OneDrive. I use Google Drive, but I've never found OneDrive to be nearly as useful for transferring files to large people. No, large files to people. I don't know. It probably doesn't work transferring files to large people either. Anyway, the last time I checked, and I'll admit it was a long time ago, you couldn't just right-click on a file and send the link to someone in OneDrive. There's one option that doesn't seem to have grabbed public attention. I learned this little tip while listening to an ad on the Accidental Tech Podcast. The ad was for the off-site backup solution, Backblaze. In the ad, and I think it was Marco Arment, he mentioned that you use the web interface, uh, that you can use the web interface to your backed-up files 
to send links to people for download. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, before I give you the steps, let me spend a little bit of time singing the overall virtues of Backblaze. I switched from CrashPlan to Backblaze back in 2017, and of course, I wrote up an article about why. And by the way, since then, CrashPlan is no longer an option for home users, so Backblaze is pretty much the only game in town, but it's wonderful. The best backup software you can use is the one that you never have to think about. As humans, we really, truly think we will remember to plug in a drive and run the backup on our computers at regular intervals. This delusion is right up there with believing we won't eat that entire bag of potato chips if we open it. Backblaze runs in the background and constantly backs up your data to the cloud with zero intervention on your part. And it's wicked fast. When I converted to Backblaze, it did its initial backup of 641 gigabytes of data in 18 hours. That was 735,000 separate files. I now have 888, uh, I'm sorry, 880 gigabytes backed up to Backblaze. Now, one of the reasons it is so fast is I have very fast internet, but I had fast internet when I was using CrashPlan and it couldn't keep up with it. It was very, very slow. I think it took three weeks to back up that much data. But Backblaze is super fast. Backblaze runs in the background and I never even notice it, which is exactly what you want. I do disable it during the live show. I have a little script that turns it off. And then I re-enable it afterwards with my little script and uh, also re-enable and, or disable and re-enable Dropbox and Google Drive. But I have to say, I've never noticed Backblaze chewing up my bandwidth unnecessarily. Now, Backblaze, Backblaze has a web interface where you can view and restore your files. You can have them send you a hard drive up to 8 terabytes with all of your data on it for only $189. If you send the drive back, you get that money refunded so you can get all of your data back very quickly. Now, Pat Dengler tested this service and it worked exactly as advertised. If you have a catastrophic failure, you know, like a flood or a fire or tornado that destroys your local data, this is a great way to get all of your data back very, very quickly. One of the strengths of Dropbox is that you can create a shared folder with someone and then you both can drop files into the folder, edit documents, and all of the changes are reflected on all of the computers where you have Dropbox enabled and the folder shared. Backblaze can't do that, but it can fill another need. In a lot of cases, I just need to share a large file with someone. I put it in Dropbox, you know, maybe in a folder called Delete Me. I wait for it to sync, and then I right-click, and I copy the file URL, and I share it. I do this all the time with software vendors when I make a short video showing a problem I'm having with their app. Backblaze can do just that with not too much more work. Backblaze has a service called B2, and it's, uh, it's for storing giant amounts of data well beyond simple backups of your local drives. They're a competitor to Amazon S3, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud. But there's a free tier of B2 that's available to all Backblaze users. In the Back, Backblaze help document at help.backblaze.com, they explained like this. Individual files within a Backblaze backup can be directly shared from the View Restore Files page. To share a file, an account must first have B2, Backblaze's cloud storage service, enabled via the account settings. Once B2 is enabled, up to 10 gigabytes of data can be stored and shared for free, with up to 1 gigabyte per day of download bandwidth. Additional usage will follow normal Backblaze B2 pricing. When a file is shared, it will be public, accessible by anyone with a direct link to the file. 
To share a file, first locate the file within the Backblaze backup via the View slash Restore Files page. Once located, select the file name to bring up the dialog shown below. It was in the picture there. Selecting the Share with Link button will copy the file to B2 under your account and generate a link to the file. All right. So Backblaze's Restore page they're talking about on the web allows you to navigate folders just as though you're looking at your own drive because it's an exact replica. That means any files you have on your Mac can be shared to other people from any location without having to move a copy to delete me. You can just point at the file. As an example, I navigated into the folder where I store artwork for the podcast, and I grabbed a link to the Podfeet logo so you too can put it on t-shirts and mugs. Simply click the link in the show notes and you have a high-resolution version of the wonderful logo created by the delightful Brian Sakamoto. To be perfectly honest, opening a web browser to Backblaze, logging in, entering my two-factor authentication, waiting for the file structure to populate on the web page, drilling down to the file in question, and requesting a link is a lot more time-consuming than right-clicking on a file in a Dropbox folder on your desktop and selecting Copy Link. But if you're smart enough to already have off-site backups by Backblaze and you don't want to pay for Dropbox just for the rare occasion where you need to send someone a giant file, less than one gigabyte, then this method of using Backblaze for file transfer is not a bad solution at all. About a week before Halloween, the shopping centers were already putting up holiday decorations. I heard on the news last night that there's going to be a Christmas tree shortage because a decade ago, when this season's trees were planted, there was a recession, so the farmers didn't plant as many trees. The news announcer suggested you should buy your Christmas tree before Thanksgiving. All of that is just bananas, but it does mean that the holiday shopping season is upon us. If you're doing your holiday shopping, why not start with an Amazon affiliate link from podfeed.com? For example, did you know that AirPods 2 with the regular charging case is only $134 on Amazon? That's really low, and there's a link in the show notes to it on Amazon. How about a snazzy new Apple Watch band from Amazon for the loved one in your life? There's a link in the show notes to that, too. There's a gorgeous pomegranate one available now. If you use the links in the show notes and buy anything in that same session from Amazon, a small percentage of what you spend will go to help the show. I know a lot of you use the Amazon affiliate links as a matter of course, and I really, truly appreciate it. I'd like to tell you about the new 16-inch MacBook Pro in a way that does not repeat what everyone else on the internet has to say already. I think I have a way to connect the dots between the new MacBook Pro and the tour we had of SpaceX. We'll get around to that in a bit. I got the new hotness on Tuesday, two days ahead of the earliest date Apple said it would arrive. I decided to do a clean install of all my applications and data, even though I just finished doing a clean install on my 2016 MacBook Pro a month and a half ago. Now, I probably could have used Migration Assistant and not have had too much cruft, but the desire to have a super clean system won the argument. I have to say, I find it very pleasing when talking to AppleCare to say, this was a clean install. Anyway, I dragged over all my data from my backup drive and installed every single app by scratch and did every fiddly bit of tailoring it all by hand. Since I did it so recently, it only took me about a day and a half to get everything working exactly as I like it. 
I got to tell you, having that mind map of what's mission critical, important, and less important was awesome. Having all the little hints like where is that file set? How do I change that setting? Uh, you know, installing all of my homebrew stuff. I have all these little hints, so it goes really, really fast. I attribute that mind map to why it took me so little time to get this done. Another time saver was I used Nightwise's tip from last year on how to install Mac App Store apps from the command line. I was able to put 28 apps on my Mac with no intervention by me at all. I literally pasted in a list and it just went installing, 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 installing. I didn't have to go search for all of them. So 28 apps just boom, they went in all by themselves. Okay, let's talk about the new machine now. I wrote a piece on the butterfly keyboard in which I said it wasn't accurate to say it was a bad keyboard because the goodness of a keyboard is a matter of opinion. Of course, the fact that they broke really often on people, that might make the moniker of bad appropriate, but the way it feels is neither good nor bad. Now, I can prove that statement by saying that I prefer the butterfly keyboard on my older MacBook Pro to the new and improved scissor key version on the 16-inch. The new one is mushier and less clicky, which kind of disappoints me. Many people, including Apple during the briefing to, select a f- to a select few, said it was the Magic Keyboard with a few improvements. Now, I love the Magic Keyboard, and I use it every single day, all day at my desk. The keyboard on the 16-inch might look a lot like the Magic Keyboard in size of the keys, key separation, and throw of the keys, but it does not feel like the Magic Keyboard. But hey, it is a lot quieter than the old keyboard, so it doesn't sound like you're typing a manifesto when writing a love note to your sweetie. Now, I'm sure I'll get used to the new keyboard, and I hope that the people who have been harping on the keyboard incessantly for the last three years will finally be happy. I'm sure they're going to find something else to be annoyed about, though. I should mention that the keyboard on my 2016 MacBook Pro is not the original keyboard because... It got replaced when the battery swelled and shoved up into the keyboard and basically messed it up. So I think I got one of the latest versions of the keyboard, and I really do like it. But again, I can get used to anything. I'm also a little bit bummed that the new computer is actually bigger than the 15-inch MacBook Pro. Now, I know it's got a 16-inch screen, but it turns out that 15-inch screen was really 15.4 inches, so you totally do not notice that there's a bigger screen. Now, I was expecting it to get thicker since the keys have more throw, but they decided to pack in more battery too, so it's heavier. It's also deeper from front to back. Now, most people might not notice that, but that little smidge deeper means that my left arm is now suspended on the case by my watch. The 2013 was like that, but the 2016 was just that little bit shorter from the front of the device to the front of the keys. Again, it's not a huge deal, but I may have to go back to taking my watch off when I'm typing on it away from my desk. Now, to be specific on the size, the 16-inch is 10% bigger in volume and 7% heavier than the previous versions of the the 15-inch. Now, all of you happy little 13-inch MacBook Pro and MacBook Air owners may look longingly at my giant, beautiful screen, but at 4.3 pounds, I bet you're not jealous of having to lug that weight around. I put a few photos in the show notes so you can visualize the size difference between the previous Model 15 and the new 16-inch. All right, enough whining. Let's get to the awesome part. This thing is fast. I went for the top of the line in speed and graphics and RAM. 
2.4 gigahertz, 8-core i9 with 64 gigabytes of RAM, but I held strong and I only got 4 terabytes of disk. I talked about what I can do with this much RAM in that dumb question we were just talking about insane amounts of RAM, so I won't repeat that here. When I got the 2016 MacBook Pro, I measured the speed against my 2013, and I was unable to find a single thing I'd do in which I could actually measure any difference in speed. I, In fact, I mean, I just sold the 2013 to Jill, listener Jill, and she's got a great machine because it's as fast as my 2016. But going from the 2016 to the 2019, the difference is definitely measurable. Every week I record a chit-chat across the pond into a digital audio workstation application called Hindenburg Journalist. Typical files like 750 megabytes when I'm done. I then export the file out to a 64 kilobit per second mono M4A file. That compression gets it down to around 130 megabytes. From there, I run the M4A file through an application called Aphonic Leveler on my desktop that allows me to level the audio, raise it to the loudness standards, and then export it from there to a compressed 64 kilobit per second MP3. The final file is around 30 megabytes. Now, I tested the process, and the new Mac transcoded the M4A file out of Hindenburg 42% faster than the 2016. Now, it turns out that's not going to be a huge time saver because it only takes 23 and a half seconds on the old Mac. But the transcoding and leveling in Auphonic takes over two minutes, and I was able to measure a 23% improvement in speed. Auphonic actually has a section where you can tell it the number of CPUs to use, so I was able to dedicate all 16, that's eight dual-core processors, to the task, doubling what the 2016 could use. There's also a section where you can define the audio processing block size, which is related to RAM usage. Not exactly sure what this means, because it's got a value that you can change from 1 to 10. 1 to 10 what? It says min next to it. At first, I thought that was like minutes. I don't know. Maybe it stands for minimum. But again, what is that 1 to 10? The only other clue is it says, quote, the higher the value, the more RAM is necessary, unquote. What do you mean necessary? Does it Meaning the more it's going to use or you should go get more RAM? I don't know. But it also says, please decrease if you get memory errors or system slowdowns. Well, I decided to interpret that to mean that if I have more RAM available, I might as well set it to 10. So I did. The tests were impressive, so I guess it works. Now, let's take it up a notch and throw some video at the two machines. Three years ago, I was really most surprised that the 2016 wasn't faster than the 2013 in transcoding the ScreenFlow video tutorials I make out to MP4 files. Well, this year, I'm not disappointed. The 16-inch beat the older Mac again by 42%. Very interesting, 42% on video and 42% on audio transcoding. It dropped the time to transcode a 45-minute long 1-gigabyte file from around 11 minutes to just under 6.5 minutes. That's real time savings. I don't actually transcode my videos, as uh, if you listen to screencast or the Screencast Online discussion on Chit Chat Across the Pond, it turns out Don and his team do a, a lot of the transcoding because they do it after they make their edits. But I'm expecting that as I do my next video tutorial in ScreenFlow to see it respond faster as I'm working along, you know, as I'm just editing and cutting and things. There's lots of times in ScreenFlow where the audio waveform doesn't show up for a while after an edit because the machine is churning away figuring out how to draw it. 
Hopefully, that problem will go away. In a more qualitative sense, I have noticed a few things feel way faster. Some apps are definitely launching faster. Hindenburg, in particular, simply just blinks on. Used to take eh, a couple of heartbeats to open. Again, I, my schedule's not that, that tight that I can't spend that kind of time, but it's just fun to see it just go, bink, it just comes right up. The other thing I notice is that Touch ID seems significantly faster. This summer, I cornered Dave Tier of Agile Bits when we were at MacStock, and I, I, I cornered him because I wanted to complain about the time it takes for one password to recognize Touch ID. It seemed really long. Well, guess what? It isn't anymore. Touch ID is way faster on this new machine. Now, ejecting my backup drive using Parallels Toolbox is instantaneous now. I know it was just a few seconds to eject on my old Mac, but if I wanted to grab my Mac and run out of the room, it felt interminable to me. And I confess, I just really often just yank it out because it was taking too long. Because it's a thing we do, I ran the Black Magic Disk Speed Test on both of my Macs. The original purpose of this free testing application was to determine if your disk was fast enough to record to real time in all kinds of formats and resolutions. Well, for a long time now, SSDs have been fast enough for all of the tests, but it's super fun to watch the little meter go up. The new 16-inch MacBook Pro performed writes at 3,000 megabytes per second and reads at around 2,600 megabytes per second. This beat my three-year-old Mac by 45% in writes and 34% in reads. I'm not sure when I'm going to notice that, though, because... I don't remember waiting for something to write to disk in a very long time, but I really like looking at those meters and going, wow, I got my money's worth there. I was noodling these numbers with my buddy Stephen Getz in Canada, and he ran the same test on his 13-inch MacBook Pro with Touch Bar from 2018. Now, you would think his 2018 machine would be really close in disk speed to the 2019 machine. You'd be half right. His 13-inch MacBook Pro, as measured by Blackmagic, was only 3% slower than mine in reads. But his write speed is 57% slower. Now, this is where things get really interesting and will take us down a geeky path that will mystify and really annoy David Roth. We wondered why his machine would be so much slower in write speed, and he found some articles suggesting that write speeds on bigger disks are actually faster. Now, wait a minute. Big disks write faster than slow disks. That doesn't make any sense. We're going to need to dig deep to figure this one out. I used a lot of sources to come up with my explanation, including a live chat with my little friend Evan over at OWC, a great video by Tech Quickie, and reading a viewer discussion on How To Geek, and I spent some quality time on Wikipedia. First of all, quite a while ago, Apple started using NVMe chips in their SSDs. NVMe is the express version of NVM. NVM stands for non-volatile memory, sorry, non-volatile memory, which is often NAND flash memory. So wait for it, NAND, not actually an acronym. It stands for not AND, a Boolean operator and logic gate. All right, before our heads explode, all you need to remember is the word NAND is in our SSDs. So, in our Macs and other computers, the SSDs are made up of multiple NAND memory chips, not just one. Bigger SSDs have more NAND chips, and every NAND chip has its own controller. As Evan from OWC put it, 
We can think of the controller of each drive as a pair of hands, since it controls and maneuvers the flow of data on the storage blocks or platters of a drive. When you have more hands doing the same work, then you have more performance. Now, there's one piece missing from this explanation. We understand that bigger disks have more NAND memory chips, so more controllers so they're faster. But remember, in Stephen and my comparisons of the two different drive sizes, the bigger one was only faster on write. On read speeds, his 256-gigabyte SSD was nearly as fast as the 4-terabyte. When comparing my 2-terabyte and 4-terabyte SSDs from 2016 and 2019, though, I see dramatic increases in both read and write. So there could have been a technology change combined in there, but I don't understand why Stevens is only, uh, you know, the difference is only on one of the two methods that we're using to use the drive. If anyone knows why both of these results make sense, I would love to know. Let's shift gears to talk about the audio in the new MacBook Pro. I promised that I could draw a line between the 16-inch MacBook Pro and our SpaceX Tour, and that time has come. (laughs) I don't promise it's a straight line, but let's see if we can follow the path. Apple is evidently serious about audio now, having just named Gary Geeves to a new vice president of acoustics role. I have never heard of a vice president of acoustics in a computer company. They have made dramatic improvements in both the speakers and the internal microphone on the new 16-inch MacBook Pro. I'm going to play you a little audio file here comparing my Heil PR40 studio mic to the internal mic on the 16-inch MacBook Pro. This is the $400 Heil PR40 studio microphone. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. This is the built-in microphone on the 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Okay, so I know it's not as good as the Heil. I'd be really bummed if it was. And, you know, it's got some rim echo to it. But, man, if you get this Mac and you want to do a recording for the show using that internal microphone... It is well up to the task of producing really good sound. Now, I did a little bit of a test before the live show, and when I'm running the 48 different applications that I do for the live show, my fans go bananas, even with this new machine, but uh, that did not make for good audio. I tested the internal mic, and basically it was like, (laughs) as I was trying to talk. So make sure your, uh, your Mac has not got its fans on if you use the internal mic for a review. Now, that was the microphone side, and I can't really play the speakers for you because that would make no sense because it would be coming out of your speakers. But they do sound really good for internal laptop speakers. When Steve was in college, he moved into his dorm room in his freshman year and was excited to set up his new stereo system. The first thing he played was the brand new hit, More Than a Feeling, by Boston. Ever since then, it's been his tradition to test all speakers and headphones with the same song. We fired it up on the old MacBook Pro and the new one, and the difference was definitely noticeable. The new Mac, in particular, had substantially better bass response. They improved the bass response by using what was called force-canceling subwoofers. Now, you probably know that the subwoofer is where you hear the bass and you hear the treble and the tweeter. But what do they mean by force-canceling subwoofers? This is where my background will get really nerdy and we're just going to have some fun that's going to make that whole NAND memory thing sound like a cakewalk. Let's start explaining 
why they did force-canceling subwoofers. I need to start by explaining the basics of electromagnetism. If you coil a wire and pass an electric current through it, you'll create a magnetic field. The more turns you put on the coil, the more powerful the magnetic field. Now, if you put a magnetic rod into the center of the coil, you can actually move the magnetic rod by changing the current in the coil. You can actually do this at home. It's one of Steve's favorite things to teach young kids. Now that you know you can move a magnetic rod with a coil of wire, you're ready to learn how speakers work. Speakers have a magnet sitting inside a coil of wire, the combination of which is called a voice coil actuator. Applying current across the wire coil will cause the magnet to move. Then there's a thin, flexible cone-shaped membrane attached to the magnet. When the current is when electric current is run through the coil, the magnet moves, which deflects the conic membrane and moves the air with it. That air moving becomes sound to your ear. Now, isn't that just cool? You know how speakers work now. Well, inside a laptop, moving these voice coil actuators back and forth to make sound come out of the speakers works just fine, but the force that this puts on the case and other components causes vibrations. Those vibrations come out as sound to your ears. Basically, the case can start rattling and make for a less than pleasant experience. Now, I promised a connection to SpaceX, right? On the tour, we saw them laying out carbon fiber, and I said it reminded me of the optical bench I worked on 100 years ago. While I didn't design the optical bench myself, it was I was responsible for a tiny little device called an image motion compensation mirror. We called it the IMC. The purpose of my mirror was to compensate for vibrations in the image reflecting off of it. The overall project, called the Helicopter Night Vision System, allowed a helicopter pilot to wear a heads-up display to view infrared imagery wherever she looked so she could fly at night and see everything clearly. It turns out that pilots can stand movement of an image up and down or right to left. That translation doesn't bother them. But the way the optical train worked on this device, any vibrations caused a twist of the imagery. And it turns out that makes the pilot irpy. We needed my little IMC mirror to save the pilot. Now, gyroscopes on the platform measured how much motion I had to remove. The simplest way to do this would be to mount the mirror on the optical bench by a flexible pivot and then use voice coil actuators to move it in two axes to compensate for the motion from the gyros. But just like the speakers in the MacBooks, pushing that mirror with the voice with the voice coil actuators would introduce new forces against the optical bench. With the goal of eliminating movement, that's the last thing we wanted. I needed a way to not introduce those forces when I moved my mirror. So here's what we did. Imagine the optical bench is just a ground plane that's not going to move. We've got the mirror mounted parallel to the top of this plane by this flex pivot. On the underside of the ground plane, I mounted a piece of aluminum of the same distributed mass of the mirror by an identical flex pivot. So we've got the mirror connected to the ground plane by a flex pivot, and then underneath there's an identical sized metal, metal plate connected by an identical flex pivot. By the way, I drew a picture for the show notes using Notability on my iPad with pencil if you're confused about what I've described. Now here's the tricky part. We drilled holes in the plane to which these two pieces are mounted and mounted the magnet half of a voice coil to the lower piece and the coil half to the mirror up above. This way, when we applied current through the voice coil, the mirror and the lower plate would move in opposite directions by bending the respective flex pivots. The result was that no linear forces were applied to the optical bench, so we introduced no vibrations with my little mirror. 
Now for the super nerdy, yes, this introduced some torque on the mount point of the flex pivots, but that didn't cause vibrations. Now, Apple didn't do anything quite as complex of all this as all this, but instead, they mounted two voice coils back-to-back with the same signal going to each one. So when one moves in one direction, the other pushes back in the opposite direction, canceling out the vibrations that would be introduced into the case and other parts of the laptop. And you have two speakers doing it, so you get even more volume, I guess. See? I told you I could draw a line from the, from SpaceX to the audio system on the MacBook Pro. And I titled this article, A Unique View on the 2019 16-Inch MacBook Pro. I bet you nobody else gave this explanation on that device. The bottom line is I think this laptop will serve me for the next three years, most importantly handling with ease the enormous demand I put on it for the live show. You should expect buttery smooth video from now on. I mentioned last week I needed a name for my new hard drive. Last week, I asked if anybody could remember the name of my one terabyte drive because I knew it was something funny. In our Slack group at podfeed.com slash Slack, Mark with a C and Nuclear John both remembered it as uh, in the 2013 as Fatso. That was close, but it triggered my memory that it was actually fatty with a PH. I can't believe they both remembered that. That was pretty silly. Anyway, my two terabyte drive in the 2016 is named Hippo. So we went from fatty to hippo. Now, Mark and John got very serious in their discussions for options for naming my four terabyte drive. They considered rhino and elephant, but you know, they wanted to leave room for growth in the future. Pat Dangler nailed it. She suggested Dumbo. Get it? It's an elephant, but it's a baby elephant. So we have room for growth in the future. Dumbo it is. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget, I need some reviews. It would really make my life easier. We can't miss a show, right? We have not missed a show in over 14 years, so we don't want to miss a show. we got to have some content. We don't want me coming on doing like a three-minute show. That would be bad. So send me in some reviews if you would. Don't Also, don't forget to send in your dumb questions like Chelsea did, and you can send those comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, anything you're looking for is podfeed.com slash whatever you want. You're looking for Patreon? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Looking for our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Looking for our Slack community? Podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Toby did for the first time in a long time, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.